Well, we have finally finished 1 Thessalonians and are starting 2 Thessalonians. If you don't know where that is, it comes right after 1 Thessalonians. So, if you get to Timothy or Hebrews, you've gone a little too far, so just go back a little bit. But we're starting 2 Thessalonians, and this is, this is another one of those passages that people just tend to skip over to get on to the good stuff. It's a uh, greeting and introduction uh, to the letter, and yet there is some good stuff in here. And so let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the first four verses. Listen to the Word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to your word again this morning, and we find that we still need to learn a lot about what it means to be faithful and loving. We know we're not as faithful or loving as we should be, or as you want us to be. So Lord, once again, open our eyes and ears that we might hear and understand and apply this word to our lives. Use it to make us more faithful and to make us more loving. Do this for each of us this morning in Jesus' name. For his glory, amen. I uh, forgot to mention earlier during the announcements, uh, we have a couple people uh, still on the mission field. Please don't forget to pray for them. Ross Cooks is uh, in uh, Uganda, and he'll be home this week, Tuesday. Okay, so he's in the very uh, last days there, and looking forward to coming home, warm showers and clean clothes, good home cooking, you know. But Julia Gross just left uh, this week, and she'll be in uh, Malawi for uh, several weeks, and uh, so we need to be praying for her. And uh, so please uh, remember to pray uh, for them as they're uh, on the other side of the world. And uh, I know our teams come back, and sometimes we think, uh, you know, missions is over, but it's not, and we're going to see that. We have several missionaries coming uh, this next month to talk about what God is doing and so that should be very good. And just wanted to kind of forgot about that earlier. So I wanted to get it in before I forgot again. The, um, as I was coming to this text, I uh, was trying to think of what is Second Thessalonians about. And I uh, remembered a particular commercial. I think some of the best commercials on television that are being done these days are ones that are being done by the various cell phone uh, companies. And uh, one of my favorites was actually uh, a while ago, I don't know, five or six years ago. Um, the, uh, they had various commercials that showed how poor, uh, a, getting a poor signal would cause misinformation and uh, to be passed on. And one of those commercials, I think my favorite one, there's this married couple trying to talk to each other on their cell phones and they're not having a whole lot of success. And the, the, the husband's out 
uh, you know, in the shopping center, and, you know, he obviously is called home to find out what he's supposed to bring because he forgot the list. Um, Not that any of you would do that, but, and so he's calling home to find out again what he's supposed to get, and and, uh, she's telling him what to bring home, and at the end she says to bring home a movie, something old. However, the husband thinks she said, bring home a monkey with a cold. And so then the camera shows uh, their living room, and there's a monkey lying on the couch with a thermometer in his mouth. And then this guy comes in dressed in black like uh, Dragnet and Joe Friday in his best Joe Friday imitation. He says, it's the static, ma'am. And so he goes on extolling the virtues of the wireless network, and at the end, the wife looks up at him and says, what about the monkey? To which the cellular man responds with something like, you know, have him rest and drink plenty of fluids. <laughs> and uh, misinformation can cause all sorts of problems, but it's not always funny. And that's what this letter is about, that there is some misinformation that has misled the members of the church in Thessalonica. And uh, that's what's, what's going on here, is they've gotten bad information. And so the book of Second Thessalonians is written, as best as we can tell, just a few months after First Thessalonians. And it's because these uh, Christ followers in Thessalonica had encountered spiritual static. And as a result, there was confusion and they were bewildered. They're puzzled because of the intense persecution that they're uh, suffering from and that they're facing. And that's really addressed in chapter 1. There's only three chapters in Second Thessalonians. There's a lot that are confused about the second coming. Apparently, they received a letter from someone who had claimed to be Paul, but Paul didn't actually write it. And so chapter 2 is addressing that misinformation. And then a lot of them are are somewhat mixed up, and uh, they basically said, well, if Jesus is coming back, we're going to stop working, we're going to quit our jobs and just sort of hang out and wait for Jesus to come back. And so chapter 3 sort of deals with that misinformation. And each chapter contains a correction uh, of a very common response to misinformation. And it's the same kind of response that many of us have when we're faced with misinformation. We try to guess at what they really meant. And uh, often we're wrong. And we don't want to admit it. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy have received this information uh, about these, uh, this young church, these young brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. And so they have immediately written another letter uh, in an effort to correct the confusion, to uh, calm and comfort them and address their concerns. And so before we even get into the text, there's a few lessons that we can learn from this right off the bat. And the first is we often need multiple exposures to God's truth um, before it begins to make sense. Sometimes we need to hear things more than once for it to sink in. And I know that's true for me. Often I need to hear things several times for it to sink in. And, um, you know, so it's important for us to stick with the fundamentals of spiritual growth. Reading the Bible, coming to worship, going to Sunday school, praying, getting in a, a small group Bible study or are with a, a group of people that will uh, pray for you. So we, we really need the fundamentals, and we tend to think the longer I've been a Christian, 
the less I need that stuff. The reality is, the longer you've been a Christian, the more you need that stuff. Constantly have to go back uh, to the fundamentals. Another lesson is uh, that it's easy for us to get sidetracked when things get difficult. It's easy for us to get sidetracked when things get difficult. These believers are undergoing trials, and uh, their capacity to cling to truth is being diminished. They're suffering, they're under persecution, there's lots of afflictions. It's just hard to hear what God's saying when you're under a lot of stress. And so whenever we're facing affliction or persecution or even just a little more stress than normal, it's easy for us to get distracted and to lose focus on spiritual things. Things get tough, we're just trying to get through the day, and we simply put all those spiritual fundamentals aside. And ironically, we sort of set those fundamentals aside just when we need them the most. And so that's another lesson for us. Uh, A third lesson is helping other people grow requires patience and realistic expectations. You know, we have to remain committed to these Christians who get confused. We're called to be diligent when other disciples get distracted. You know, I told someone recently that often the Christian life seems like three steps forward and two steps back. Uh, but at least we're making progress, you know? And sometimes it's our job to simply hang in there with people who are uh, wayward or worried or are simply weak in their faith. And if you look at Paul's methodology throughout these letters of First and Second Thessalonians, he comforts them and corrects. He encourages them and he exhorts them. He affirms them, but he also admonishes them. And we need to have that same balance when dealing with other people. There's times when people need uh, correction, and there's times when they need encouragement. And uh, a wise believer will know when, uh, what is needed and, and how to do that. And simply, there's times we just need to hang in there with each other. And the final lesson is spiritual growth is often accomplished through a whole variety of means. I mean, the primary means that Paul used Uh, for maturing believers were preaching and prayer. And uh, there's no other way to accelerate growth. Uh, You need those things uh, in your life. And uh, we don't like to talk about it, but it's pretty much unavoidable if we're serious about following Christ. And that's the, the third element in his ministry, which is suffering, affliction, and persecution. And preaching prayer and persecution are usually the catalysts for Christian growth, and we're pretty content with the first two, um, but that's not what we see in the New Testament. Often, there's some sort of problem or uh, persecution or suffering going on, and apparently that's the case here in Thessalonica, and with this struggling young church, and so Paul writes to them again, and he starts off by reminding them of their genuine conversion, verses 1 and 2. Their genuine conversion. The introduction of this letter is very similar to the opening verses of 1 Thessalonians. If you take a look at verses 1 and 2, Paul, Silvanus, sometimes it's Silas, sometimes Silvanus, same guy. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, Paul writes as a member of a team with Silas and Timothy. The church of the Thessalonians was a church facing pervasive persecution. Uh, They needed to be reminded that they were in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul frequently speaks of believers as being in Christ. But it's only here and in 1 Thessalonians that he describes them as being in God the Father. It is, however, an appropriate reminder of God the Father's care for a church that's undergoing severe persecution. No matter what is happening, they weren't alone. They're not alone, and grace and peace are available to them. And so Paul, he's now ministering, he's writing this letter from Corinth, pagan Corinth, a city of merchants, priests, rabbis, slaves, prostitutes, seamen, and noblemen and women. And uh, Paul is writing from there and begins his second letter uh, to the Thessalonians. So the first thing he tells them is they're recipients of God's call. You know, we know a little bit about this church. We're told in Acts 17, uh, when Paul first went there, it says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So there's a number of people there in that church, and they're called by the Father out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of his Son. The apostle speaks of them back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He said, For they themselves report how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So spiritually speaking, these Christians are the recipients of God's grace. And Paul reminds them that his own salvation, together with theirs, is a direct result of that grace. You know, grace is God's divine favor expressed towards men and women who essentially are living in rebellion against him and who are under his wrath. But then in one of the great verses of the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, we read, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So the Thessalonians are recipients of God's grace. They're also recipients of God's peace. They had come by faith uh, to Jesus Christ, and part of God's favor to them is his peace. Paul would later write uh, to the church in Rome, in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's real easy when you're reading through the New Testament, you see this over again, grace and peace to you, you know, grace and, and it just sort of comes across as a greeting, like we might say, hi, how you doing? And you don't realize the power in this greeting. Paul is uh, praying for them and wishing for them and hoping for them two of the best things that they could have, grace and peace. And so now he gets through that opening and he turns his attention from the gifts, grace and peace, that God has bestowed upon the Thessalonians to share with them his thankfulness to God for what Christ is doing in their life. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul gratefully remembered their faith, love, and hope, and how uh, they were very productive. 
And he wrote back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he returns to those themes here in the second letter. But he emphasizes that those qualities aren't just uh, productive, but they're also progressive. And he starts by mentioning their growing faith, verse 3, their growing faith. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Clearly, thanksgiving is a fundamental component of the uh, mental framework that controls Paul's prayer life. But for what does Paul offer thanks? And I was thinking about that. What do we uh, commonly offer thanks for? Well, we say grace at meals. We thank God for our food. Uh, we give thanks when we receive material blessings, you know, when the mortgage that we've applied for comes through, or when we first turn on the ignition in a car we just purchased. You know, you may uh, sigh a prayer of thanks, uh, uh, sweaty thanks after a near miss on the highway, you know, when your hands are still going like this. Um, may utter a prayer of, uh, you know, sincere thanks when we recover from some illness or accident or injury. And we can offer uh, thanks when we hear someone has made a commitment to Christ. But by and large, our thanksgiving seems to be tied rather tightly to our material well-being and comfort. We give thanks when things get better in our lives. And the unvarnished truth is that what we most frequently give thanks for betrays what we value most highly. What we most frequently give thanks for betrays what we value most highly. And if a large uh, part of our thanksgiving is for material prosperity, it's because we disproportionately value material prosperity. And that's why when you turn to Paul's uh, thanksgiving, they're kind of startling. They seem sort of alien. They don't focus on the things that we cherish. Paul gives thanks for signs of grace in the lives of, of these other Christians. He starts by saying, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. That uh, phrase there, ought always, means to be under obligation. He says, I have to give thanks to you. I'm obligated to give thanks to you. I have no choice but to give thanks because God's, uh, the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, is so obvious in your life. Paul's positive about these believers, not negative. Instead of focusing on what's wrong with them, instead of focusing just on the misinformation, he essentially catches them being good. And that's probably a good practice for us to follow. Now, all along, the faith of the Thessalonians has been one of the Apostle Paul's really big concerns. Previously wrote back in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he said, we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. And then he said, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. And then again he said, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face 
and supply what is lacking in your faith. So this issue of having faith is a big deal to the Apostle Paul. And he's wanting to know if they've been established and, and if they're growing in the faith. That's one of the driving motivations behind the writing of these letters. And faith in this context means uh, a con- you hate it when people do that, you know. Where was I? Wow, I'm back. Faith. Faith is the confidence in the reality of a personal God revealed in his son Jesus. Thessalonians received the gift of faith from God, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Uh, Rich is teaching through Hebrews now in uh, Sunday school, and there we read, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then it goes through that sort of hall of faith. Um, great folks from the Old Testament primarily. And uh, we see the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is their reliance upon a God who revealed himself and whom they knew to be trustworthy. And that reliance enabled them to treat the future as present and the invisible as visible. Faith doesn't end at the moment of salvation, but it continues to grow as one begins to trust God for the joys and temptations of daily life. Jesus demonstrated faith. He trusted his Father for every word, action, direction of his life. And we know also from Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So faith not only saves us, but gives us confidence in God for all that life throws our way. Hebrews also says back in chapter 11, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So the believer not only trusts God for his salvation and leads upon God's power to cope with present realities, but his heart's filled with confidence that Jesus is coming again. And according to Paul, that's the kind of faith the Thessalonians are exhibiting. He says, your faith is growing abundantly. But that's not all he said. He also thanked God for their increasing love. Their increasing love, also verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So this is a direct answer to Paul's prayer back in 1 Thessalonians. There he said in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. And now he's saying, your love for one another is increasing. 
So his prayer has been answered. Now the word Paul uses here for increasing means uh, superabundantly. And uh, it paints the picture of a river overflowing its banks. And most of us, the truth be told, when it comes to, to love some people, we kind of establish boundaries. You know, just how far we're willing to go to love them. But that's not the kind of love it's talked about here. This is a limitless love that goes beyond those barriers. And it's worth thinking about that a little bit more. You know, a close-knit society with shared ideals and goals frequently finds it relatively easy to foster uh, love and tolerance and cohesion in the group. You think of some local club like a, a rock climbing club or a football team or some even a socially cohesive uh, local church. A certain amount of uh, love is fairly common there when we're all there for the same reason, when we're all pretty much alike, and you know when there isn't a lot of differences between us. Of course, the reality is that such groups often run into terrible division over power politics, or the disruptive member, or you know a nasty bit of nepotism. But some measure of love is not unusual when groups form and they're all the same. Ideally, the church should be different. It's not supposed to be a socially cohesive group where everyone is just like everyone else. The church is supposed to be made up of people who are as varied as can be. You know, rich and poor, learned and unlearned, practical and impractical, sophisticated and unsophisticated, disciplined and flighty, intense and carefree, extrovert and introvert, and everything in between. The only thing that holds such people together is a shared allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's only their devotion to Jesus that stems from his indescribable love for them that keeps them together. A lot of you wouldn't even know each other had it not been that you came here because you love Jesus. And that's why it's so pathetic when a local church becomes this uh, boiling cauldron of resentment and bitterness. The pitiful state of affairs can erupt simply because there's very little at those other levels, at the social level or the economic level or temperamental or educational or any other level that holds those people together. And so when we lose sight of our first and primary allegiance, which is Jesus, then we start squabbling. And when social or racial or economic or temperamental uniformity seems more important than basking in the love of Christ, then nothing less than idolatry has reared its blasphemous head. When declarations of profound love for Jesus aren't mirrored by love for others who also profess to love uh, that same Jesus, then we are, can legitimately ask how serious we should take those declarations. If you say you love Jesus, but you don't love other people who love Jesus, we have the right to question whether you really do love Jesus. And that's where it gets kind of hard. Rubber meets the road. That's a little tough. 
But of course, we can also put it positively. When Christians do grow in their love for each other, for no other reason that they're all loved by Jesus and they love him in return, then that growing love, that increasing love, is an infallible sign of grace in their lives. And most emphatically is this particular display of love a signal demonstration of grace. It says here in this text, the love of every one of the Thessalonian believers. Every one of those believers have been caught up in this increasing love. It's not just some uh, small spiritual elite. The whole church has been caught up in this. And that's the stuff of revival. And that's why Paul is so grateful. He's not going out and saying, you know, eh, these few people here and there are loving. Everybody is loving. And Paul's talking about this kind of sacrificial love, which recognizes another person's worth and holds them in high esteem. It's the kind of love that's filled with goodwill and thought and deed, whether directed towards believers or unbelievers. It wants to do the best for the other person. Now, that doesn't always follow our natural inclinations, nor is it always directed towards those who are easy to love. And let's be honest, there's some people who are easy to love, and we enjoy loving people who are easy to love. But the church isn't 100% filled with people who are easy to love. Not this church, not any church. I'm not going to name names. Henry Nouwen was a uh, Dutch Catholic theologian and writer. And I don't agree with everything he wrote, but I think he was a very wise uh, person. And he wrote, in order to be of service to others, we have to die to them. We have to give up measuring our meaning and value with the yardstick of others. To die to our neighbors means to stop judging them, to stop evaluating them, and thus become free to be compassionate. Compassion can never exist with judgment because judgment creates the distance which prevents us from really being with the other person. When we notice things that are wrong with folks, does this lead us to compassion and helping or to judging and distance? And we don't often talk about love in terms of dying to others, but it does have a certain biblical ring to it. After all, it was Jesus who said in John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's the kind of love Paul's talking about. And so Paul's thanked God for their growing faith and their increasing love. And last but not least, he thanks God for their enduring faithfulness. Verse 4, their enduring faithfulness. He says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches to God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions 
that you are enduring. Now, when Paul says, we ourselves boast about you, he's not using the word boast the same way we normally do. He's not saying, hey, look at what a great church I've planted. You know, what he's saying is not boasting of that order because that would be about him and not about them. And he's saying he's boasting about them. Rather, I think it would be something uh, more like this. Have you noticed how powerfully the grace of God is operating in the lives of the Thessalonian believers? The way they're withstanding the pressure of persecution and assorted trials is pretty remarkable. It's a compelling testimony to the grace of God. And fortified by their growing faith and love, they just press on and on. What an example, what an encouragement, what an incentive for the rest of us. And so his boasting is nothing other than uh, more thanksgiving to God just uttered in the presence of other churches. And Paul and his fellow workers are proud of the Thessalonians' determination to sort of bear up courageously as well as maintain their trust in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution and affliction. And there was a lot of persecution and affliction, the religious Civil social pressure was unrelenting. Jews against Jewish Christians, Gentile idol worshipers against these new converts to a new God, husbands and wives against their Christian mates. You know, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount would have applied to these people, where he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Thessalonians are courageously enduring in the face of their enemies. They were, in Paul's words in uh, 2 Corinthians, afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. I think that describes this church. Life was tough and they weren't quitting. The Thessalonians didn't react to discomfort the way many Christians do today by running away from an uncomfortable situation. They viewed their circumstances as God's will and they were determined to hold up under the pressure. But it wasn't an attitude, um, we're going to endure by the you know, force of our own strength. You know, it wasn't just to sort of grit and bear it. They had faith in God. They looked to God for the grace sufficient to bear up under their burdens. They accepted their circumstances as conditions which he was allowing for his glory. And they were patiently enduring. It's not a fatalistic or passive endurance, but endurance that are found in the hearts uh, that are filled with the hope of the coming of Christ and power and glory and justice. And they can endure because they knew a day was coming when all things will be set right. And so Paul is amazed by the faith that he found in this church. And he's amazed by the love that he found in this church. And he's amazed by the endurance that he found in this church. And because of all that, he thanks God for this church. And over the last couple of weeks, 
I've been contacted three times by a church in Alabama that wanted me to candidate to be their senior pastor. And before you either panic or rejoice, um, <laughs> you need to know I declined the opportunity. But it was a pretty good opportunity. Unbeknownst to me, I'd been recommended by two prominent leaders in the PCA, and it feels good to have folks recommend you. And to be honest, it felt good to be asked. And it's a large 1,700-member uh, church, has a substantial outreach in that community. It would have been an exciting challenge uh, to take on. Of course, it's possible I was re recommended for the job because the people giving the recommendation hated that church and thought I'd wreck it in short order. You know, one never knows. And to be honest, this location didn't excite me a whole lot. But there were three main reasons I declined uh, their offer to candidate. First, I thought, you know, perhaps God might have something to say about this. Just a thought. Actually, God didn't speak to me at all about it, which means that A, I'm a bad listener, or B, God wasn't calling me to do anything other than what I'm doing right now. And so I chose B. Um, <laughs> and I chose B because I'm a big believer that God calls you somewhere you shouldn't leave until he calls you somewhere else. And at no time did I sense that God was doing that. And until he does, or you fire me, I'm not going anywhere. Second, there's a really good group of supportive elders here who are very wise most of the time. I mean, sometimes they're flat out dumb, but that's pretty rare. Anyways, I figured it would take three to five years to build up a group of elders that are as good as the ones I've got here. And that challenge didn't excite me. And third, and this is the part that concerns you, we've already gone through a lot together in the last 12 and a half years. And I, and I started thinking about that. You know, if I went, what would I be leaving? And just thinking back through the history of this church. You know, going back to the church, almost running out of money our first summer here. And making the move from Ashburn Elementary here to Harper Park, wondering if we're ever going to come close to filling this auditorium. We went through a challenging season without a worship leader. And one year we only had enough money to hire a youth pastor or buy an office, and so we did both. <laughs> you know, we had the high-tech uh, bubble burst, and we had seven families go unemployed in two months. And that was difficult. We've seen good friends come and good friends go, and that's hard, too. We've watched the uh, Hefner and Zanino clans uh, arrive and arrive and arrive. <laughs> and they've helped us learn how to love and showed the power of the gospel to change lives. And they're still arriving. We've been through Todd's heart surgery and Phoebe's cancer, and the only thing we could do was pray. And it turned out that prayer was just what was needed. And when those crises come again, and they will, we've learned what we need to do. Time and time again, the elders have prayed over people, and we've watched them get better. We live through marriage issues, parenting issues, job issues, financial issues, and many other issues, all of us together. The two-year-olds in the nursery when I arrived are now teenagers entering high school. And it's just a guess on my part, but I think over the next 10 years, there's going to be a lot of weddings. 
And we've gone from a time when the oldest person in the church was in their late 40s to when the oldest person in the church is, well, older than that. <laughs> we've sent groups out on six mission trip, trips. Uh, Cherokee, North Carolina, Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, twice. New Orleans, France, and there's some folks here this morning newly acquainted with Iowa. And we sent Anne-Marie and Marcy everywhere. I've preached here 516 times, not that anyone's counting. And I'm amazed that you remember each and every one. <laughs> but what that means is we've been through Romans, the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, Hebrews, Nehemiah, the Seven Deadly Sins, 1 Peter, Galatians, Ecclesiastes, 2 Corinthians, Ruth, the Gospel of Luke from December 2000 to May of 2003... That's the record. The Minor Prophets, Acts, Selected Psalms, Romans again, Old Testament Prayer, Song of Songs, 2 Timothy, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, New Testament Prayers, Daniel, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians now, and soon Revelation. And there's a lot more Bible to go. But more than anything, you know, I'm thinking about this phone call that I got from this church but I'm reading this text, and I'm reading, your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And so the bottom line is, I'm staying here because of you. And I'm staying here because of your faith. And I'm staying here because of your love. And I'm staying here because I just want to see how it's all going to turn out. And so I'm not ready to leave. And I hope you're not either. Think about that. You need to pray.